0: Welcome to episode 120 of the Non-Anxious Leader podcast. I'm Jack Shatama. Today, we are going to look at the process of projection. Last week, when I focused on the four automatic responses to system anxiety, one of the automatic responses was projection. Because I could not go into it in depth, I felt like this would be an important emotional process to revisit this week, and I'm going to use one of Friedman's fables to do that. So without further ado, here is Friedman's fable, Projection. When Billy was about six, he drew his first picture on the bedroom wall. His mother, torn between wanting her child to express himself and wanting her wall to be clean, decided to let him be. As his hand grew more steady, however, Billy's mother noted that most of his drawings had something in common. All his figures were lying down. Startled, she told her husband. After dinner, he went up to Billy's room. It was exactly as his wife had said. On each wall, Billy had scribbled scenes of figures lying down. None of the figures were standing or sitting. Everyone was lying down. What could it mean? Should they ask him? Perhaps it was only a phase. Father thought it best to wait, but for mother it became too difficult to avoid the subject completely. Finally, she said to her son, Billy, I noticed that in all your pictures you always draw everyone lying down. Yes, mother, said Billy, and he went on drawing. His mother was so upset by the sureness of her son's response, as well as his indifference to her anxiety, that, with the burning question now spoken, she dropped the subject and left the room. After a month or so, however, as Billy's artistry improved, his mother noticed something else consistent in her son's drawing. Not only was everyone lying down, but it also appeared that everyone was hurt. Some seemed to have sticks protruding from their bodies, if faces were drawn, the eyes were always closed, and the position of many seemed to indicate that they were out or dead. Again, she told her husband, and again he found his wife was right. Each figure his son had drawn showed little life, and the ribbons of red color attached to many of the bodies suggested they were gushing blood. Once more the parents caucused. Why was their son fixated on pain? Was he trying to express his own? Was he depressed? Maybe even suicidal? Maybe he was angry. Late into the evening his father and mother discussed possibilities. Were they not good to him? Had they unwittingly favored his sister? Had they failed to give him a chance to express his feelings? Should they consult a professional? Oh, this is ridiculous, said Father finally. Why don't we just ask him? But perhaps, worried Mother, that's the worst thing we could do. I mean, to call attention to it. Suppose he is hiding things, he might bury them deeper. Indecisive, Billy's parents went to bed to a sleepless night. The next morning, however, Father walked into his son's room and said, with all the naturalness he could muster, "'Billy, it seems to me that in each of your drawings "'people not only are always lying down, "'but they also always seem to be in pain. "'I mean, is that how you meant it?' "'Yes, Father,' answered Billy and said no more. "'Well,' said Father, again trying hard to be natural, "'just why? That is, how come? "'I mean, well, what's the reason for that?' "'That's just the way I think them up,' said Billy.' who continued playing with his toys. As it had been with his wife, Billy's father became so disarmed by the nonchalance of his son's response that he dropped the subject and went to work. After all, Billy was basically a good boy. He never had trouble in school. Taking him to a doctor might actually nip something creative in the bud. For the next half year, as Billy's artwork became more sophisticated, it could be seen that many figures actually had been in violent situations, run over by cars, hit on the head by rocks, stabbed, shot. His parents held their breath. However, just around the time that Billy turned seven, a new development occurred. Upon entering his room one afternoon, his mother noticed that the people in Billy's drawings no longer were whole. Limbs were missing, guts were hanging out, faces were smashed in, heads were severed. This was too much. Something sinister was clearly at work inside her son's head. When her husband came home, she informed him of her horrible discovery. What they found together was even worse. Not only were the people Billy drew torn to pieces, but so were his toys. Soldiers were missing arms and legs, a doll had its eyes ripped out, a stuffed cat was cut open at the belly. That did it. His parents stumbled over one another to reach the phone. They obtained the name of a specialist in children's problems and hastily made the earliest appointment they could. With the utmost caution, his parents explained to Billy that there was a nice man who wanted to talk to him, and two days later, after dressing Billy in his best clothes, they brought him over to the nice man for his interview. He took their son into a separate room and asked him if he liked to draw. Oh yes, said Billy, whereupon he produced some drawing paper and crayons and told the boy that he would be back in a little while. During that time, he assured Billy that he was free to play with any of the toys in the room. The specialist then left Billy and joined his parents in an adjoining room equipped with a one-way mirror. Immediately, Billy set about drawing his people, lying down, scenes of violence, severed bodies. After a while, he tired of drawing and began to play with some toy soldiers and dolls, especially made to be pulled apart and rejoined. Immediately, Billy began to break off the various parts and lay the mutilated remains side by side. See, said his parents aghast, it's just as we told you. Most alarming to the clinician, however, was the matter-of-fact attitude of the boy, the total absence of any feeling as he went about dismembering and then lining up the bodies. The clinician told the parents to wait, enter the room where Billy was playing, and skillfully engaged him in harmless conversation around his play. Billy, as usual, always answered politely and to the point. But the specialist found he could not get below the surface. He took a new tack. Do you know what you want to be when you grow up? For the first time, Billy showed some glee. Oh, yes, said Billy. Sensing success, he pursued the path. I'm glad to see you can get excited. You know your parents are afraid that you are a very angry child. Angry, said Billy. Why should I be angry? They are so nice to me. The only thing that would make me angry, continued Billy, is if they would not let me be what I want to be when I grow up. And what is that? the man asked anxiously. A doctor, shouted Billy, as he examined another severed toy. And the moral of the story is, what we see outside of us is always connected to what is happening inside of us. The moral of this story is related to the idea that nobody gets the problem they can handle. It is our own anxiety and how we manage it that has as much an impact as anything on the way we process the world around us. In the case of Billy's parents, whatever anxiety they had before his so-called symptoms started, it became worse when they processed what they saw by projecting their greatest fears on the situation. In general, anxious reactive responses have less to do with the stimulus and more to do with the patterns that have been programmed in us. These typically result from unresolved issues and our own family of origin. Edwin Friedman in Generation to Generation has an entire chapter on child-focused families. As I mentioned last week, projection as an automatic response to anxiety most likely happens with an intense focus on a particular child. As Murray Bowen developed family systems theory, he studied family after family, and he noticed three emotional coordinates that are present in child-focused families, where there is an intense focus on a particular child, and that child becomes symptomatic. The first component or emotional coordinate in child-focused families is reciprocity between mother and child reciprocity was noted as one of the four automatic responses to system anxiety and in a child-focused family this almost always occurs between mother and child this often does have to do with overfunctioning and underfunctioning but it also has to do with healthy functioning and anxiety paradoxically when the child with whom the mother has intense involvement starts to function better mother will get more anxious This is what happened with mother when Billy was nonchalant and non-anxious about her fears. His functioning was fine, and that sent her through the roof. The converse also occurs. When mother starts to function in self-differentiated ways, the child will experience this as emotional withdrawal and will start to act up. In these cases, Friedman recommends that mother be coached to maintain a non-anxious presence through the child's unwilling sabotage until the child can get to a place of better functioning. To some extent, this dynamic is true in nearly every family as teenagers and young adults try to function on their own. This has the effect of increasing the anxiety of the parents. Likewise, when parents start to develop a life of their own outside of their children's, It increases the children's anxiety. This is reciprocity. The second component or emotional coordinate present in child-focused families, present in the projection process, is the emotional absence of the father. Remember that somebody can be physically present but emotionally absent, and the typical result of father's emotional absence would be for mother to look for intimacy somewhere else and their focus would then be on one of the children. This is how a child focus develops between mother and child. This is a classic triangle. Mother and father have discomfort between them because of father's emotional absence, and mother focuses intensely on a child. In families with multiple children, it will be one child who likely ends up with the intense focus. This is why when you look at families with multiple children, one of the children typically has a harder time functioning. This would be the clue that there has been intense focus on this child. And as I mentioned last week, anxiety is not distributed fairly. So those children that have not been the object of intense focus typically are able to function in more healthy ways. The reasons for father's emotional absence in these situations can vary, but it usually goes back to his own family of origin and unresolved issues there. In child-focused families, father's reactivity is almost always to mother's anxiety, not to the child's behavior. While there was some reactivity to Billy's behavior in this fable, father was more reactive to mother and to her fear. The third component or emotional coordinate that occurs in child-focused families where there is projection is mother's uncomfortable relationship with her own mother. This would be an unresolved issue in her own family of origin, which in response to mother's emotional absence would result in her own intense focus on one of her children. When mother can be coached to work through her relationship with her own mother, where she can ultimately become a non-anxious presence and take non-anxious emotional stands with her mother, then it is likely that she will reduce her intense focus on her child. These three emotional coordinates highlight the difference between cause of anxiety and focus of anxiety. We don't know the exact causes of mother's and father's anxiety here in this fable, but we do know that their focus was on Billy. During this brief period that was documented in the fable, Billy remains a non-anxious presence, which increases parents' anxiety. It is likely that had their projection increased and their intense involvement got even deeper that Billy would have ended up acting out in some way. While the projection process can most often occur in a child-focused family, it can also occur in other systems. And this is where it's helpful to understand if we're trying to lead through self-differentiation. Projection can also occur in congregational and organizational systems. It is a form of pain displacement because, as I mentioned, it's actually based on an unresolved issue in one's family of origin. The leader of a congregation or organization can become the intense focus of one of the members' projection when there is an unresolved issue in their own family of origin, and they focus either their adoration or their criticism on the leader. When this happens in somebody who is normally functioning in healthy ways, I always ask the question, what is going on in their own family of origin? It is likely that the homeostasis has gone out of whack and they are having a hard time coping with it, so they displace their pain and anxiety on the leader. This rarely results in adoration and almost always results in criticism of the leader. When somebody continually adores or criticizes the leader, this is a chronic situation, and the question that is asked is, what is the chronic, unresolved issue in this person's family of origin? In either case, it's important to remember that our first instinct is to withdraw from people who criticize us and make things worse. Or we might get close, too close, to people who adore us and end up adapting to their own anxious functioning. In either case, self-differentiation is the key. Not taking the bait of criticism enables us to remain a non-anxious presence and ultimately help them come to terms with their own anxiety. This is done by avoiding a conflict of wills and connecting emotionally in a healthy way. This comes from being present and being able to listen, not from defending ourselves or getting into that conflict of wills and trying to prove the other wrong. The emotional process of projection is a clue to us that someone is having a difficult time dealing with their own anxiety. If this happens in us, if we are projecting onto somebody else, then we need to ask what's going on inside. And instead of looking at the person upon whom we're projecting, actually looking into our own family of origin. If it's somebody else who is projecting on us, then the key is to maintain a non-anxious presence and connect with them in healthy ways. What I have found is in these cases, we ultimately get to a point where I am connecting with them and helping them to walk through what they are struggling with. So they transfer the object of their pain from me back to where it belongs and then are able to work through what is going on with them. When we are able to help somebody do that, not by telling them what to do, but just by being present with them, they actually will end up closer to us in a healthy way. Understanding the projection process will not only help you recognize this when it's happening in the system that you lead, but it will also help you to handle it as a non-anxious leader. That's it for episode 120. Don't forget to connect with me at the thenonanxiousleader.com. You can sign up for my email list, and you can use the contact form to ask a question or make a comment. I'll respond to you quickly, and then you will have my email address if you want to correspond with me regularly. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, there are two things you can do to help others find this podcast. First, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app, and second, leave a review. I appreciate your help. Finally, you can find more resources as well as subscribe to my blog at thenonanxiousleader.com. Now, go be yourself.